Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Welcome to the I Believe podcast. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, and I am here with Dr. Basil Williams, and we are actually going to be discussing something that I'm hoping this will be helpful, especially to newer patients, um, specifically patients who have not had a treatment done yet. But it's also going to be good information um, for anyone who's had any kind of specific type of radiation treatment so that you can kind of understand some of the side effects, some of the things you might anticipate if you're newer to treatment or you're kind of experiencing some of these things. Uh, I know that, you know, as a patient, it can get really alarming when we start experiencing new things with our eye <laughs> that we didn't expect or we didn't know about. So we're hoping that we can kind of dispel some of those rumors and, um, really just give you guys some knowledge to uh, equip yourselves with going into treatment or post-treatment. Um, so this is Dr. Basil Williams. If you guys have not seen him before, he actually presented, I believe in the 2020 or maybe 2021, I believe conference. I can't remember which. Um, he is a- an MD associate professor of ophthalmology at the Baskin Palmer Institute, where he specializes in ocular oncology and vitreoretinal uh, diseases and surgery. And we are so glad to have him here. We're going to be talking about the pros and cons of radiation to the eye. We're going to cover like basically for about 45 minutes to an hour, um, anterior and posterior tumors, the pros and cons of different types of treatments for those tumors and the possible side effects you can experience as well as we're going to kind of touch on a little bit around the biopsy and, and what to expect for the biopsy. So super excited for this and so glad to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this. Yes. Okay. So let's just talk, let's just talk locations. Like I know we, most of the time ocular melanoma occurs within the eye. So it occurs within the choroid. Um, I know there's a couple other kind of locations that can be involved, like the ciliary body, sometimes the conjunctiva, but that's a little more rare. So let's just talk about kind of those locations. What does anterior and posterior mean in terms of the location of the tumor? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, when we're thinking of ocular melanoma, for the most part, we're thinking about intraocular disease. And so when it's inside the eye, it's in the uveal tissue. And the uvea is kind of a fancy term that is comprised of three areas. The choroid, which is mostly the back part of the eye, the ciliary body, which is more towards the front, and then the iris, the colored part of your eye, all the way in the front. And so when we say anterior tumors, tumors, we're mostly meaning iris melanomas. And then there are some ciliary body or choroidal tumors that are closer to the front part of the eye. And then posterior tumors are further towards the back part of the eye. So is there kind of like a midline, like if we were to look at a diagram of the eye, there's about a, like a midline point. Um, and when it like crosses the midline, it's anterior. When it's behind the midline, it's posterior. Yeah, more or less, I think that's a reasonable way to think about it. Um, if you think about the eye like the globe, you think about the equator, um, it would be fairly similar as well. So if you kind of put an equator through the middle of the eye, anything posterior to that would be considered a posterior tumor. And then things anterior to that would, would be considered more anterior. Um, the exact physiologic uh, definition might be a little different, but I think um, for the explanation purposes, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Um, so... What are kind of the different the different treatment options that you can do when you have, um, I guess, really an internal intraocular tumor, like a choroidal or a ciliary body? And um, is there kind of a, I know there's, we obviously know there's a nucleation, that's an option. So do you want to just, I guess, kind of let's back, let's go back from a nucleation. So like, if you need a nucleation, it's because why? Yeah. So I think enucleation is obviously the oldest treatment. Um, and there's a lot of things that go into that, but predominantly the tumor can be very, very large. And so it might be too large for other treatment options to work. 
And so enucleation works well then. Uh, there are some times where the tumor can be large and radiation may be appropriate for it, but the side effects and complications from radiation can be so significant that it can cause problems down the road and therefore enucleation may be reasonable. Um, or sometimes if the eye does not have a lot of visual potential um, and there's damage to the eye for other reasons and the tumor is noted, then sometimes enucleation can be a good option in that scenario since there's already a limited chance for vision in the long run. Okay, so that makes sense. So then let's go, I guess, size-wise back from maybe the supernova large of tumors that are, or the, the untreatable by radiation for whatever reason, size or otherwise. Um, and let's go backwards to, you know, the next, the next tier or, you know, maybe not the smallest, but um, I guess the, or not the largest, but like the second largest <laughs> mm -hmm. in some factors. Um, what are, what are some of the treatment options there? Yeah, so for large or medium-sized tumors, uh, radiation tends to be the most common approach. It's, uh, it also provides really, really good success rates. And so radiation is often split in between plaque brachytherapy and proton beam. Um, I think plaque is likely more common in the U.S., and that's basically where you take a gold plate that has radioactive seeds on the inside of it, and you attach this gold plate to the wall of the eye, so it's outside the eye, and it gets attached to the eye in the area of the tumor. The radiation works its way across the eye wall to kill the tumor over a period of uh, two to seven days, depending on the center. There's a little bit of a range there. Um, and that's a one-time treatment and has extremely high success rates, uh, 95 to 98%. Proton beam is a little bit different because there's an external radiation source. And so um, the patient is kind of positioned in a way and the radiation comes from outside the eye towards the eye. And sometimes that's done in fractions. So the patient will have to uh, go back for more than one session. And that kind of depends on the size and, of the tumor and various other factors. With proton beam, it is usually that there is a procedure done beforehand where they attach some tantalum clips, basically some markers they attach to the eye. So when they're doing the radiation treatment, they know where the tumor is in relation to those clips, and that allows them to target the tumor with the radiation. Okay, so two questions. Um, one, the tantalum clips, are they permanent or are they temporary? Uh, they are permanent, so you have the surgery, they are put in place, and then they stay there. Uh, they don't need to be removed for any reason. They don't cause any complications down the road uh, for the most part, and so they just kind of stay. So what are they then? Because I, I didn't have proton beam therapy. Um, I know a couple people who have had them, so I mean, I know the plaque is a piece of metal, so obviously that doesn't stay forever. That's correct. Um, what are the tantalum clips? Like, what are they made of? I don't I don't know if I know that. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually don't know the specific material. I do um, mostly plaques. Um, and so, you know, this is another thing that we can talk about in terms of choosing treatment. But uh, when a patient needs proton beam uh, in our center, we actually end up sending them to a different location that does proton beam more regularly. Um, so I don't actually know the makeup of the material of the tantalum clips. Uh, but when they're, they're surgically placed and they stay forever and, and they are not metal, as you mentioned, so there's no issue with getting, uh, MRI scans down the road. Well, I mean, I guess that's a, that's a question to search on Google for in the future. If I find sure. the answer while you're talking, I will let people know. Um, but no, that was just, I just was thinking, I'm like, well, if they're permanent, like they must not be metal because like you said, for an MRI, for anything in the future, like that would be a problem. Um then they, they obviously don't seem to cause discomfort because the people who have them don't talk about how they're bothering them all the time. So it's just interesting. Okay. So let's talk about what would be as like, I guess, is there, is there any other type of treatment for the eye that um, you would feel is worth talking about? There are a number of other treatments for the eye. Um, I think those are the most commonly used ones at this point. Uh, yeah, there are certain like medium, types of large tumors, things like that. Exactly. And even for small tumors, radiation is still the most commonly used treatment. There are different types of laser. Uh, there's photodynamic therapy. There are new um, clinical trials with nanoparticle technology uh, to treat small lesions. So I think there's a number of other treatment options that are available. Um, but right now, by far the most common um, is radiation probably makes up close to 95% of the treatments done in the U.S. And then a nucleation would make up the vast majority of the rest of those treatments. Okay, that makes sense. So, okay, let's cover a little bit of like 
if someone is selecting um, selecting the type of treatment that they're going to have, uh, whether they have a small, medium, or large tumor, obviously if a nucleation is the only option, that would be presented. But let's assume for the sake of this discussion that radiation is on the table. Um, so we've got proton beam, we've got brac, uh, brachytherapy, brac, mm-hmm. plaque, <laughs> just mixing words. It's fine. We've got these two kind of main options and how, like based on the size, based on the location, um, how do you go about kind of offering or thinking about what's going to be the best treatment option for your patient? Yeah. So I would say the vast majority of time for small tumors, we try to avoid a nucleation. And I think that's for a number of reasons. Uh, Usually the dose of radiation to the eye is going to be smaller in that scenario. And therefore the risks and the side effects and the complications are going to be lower. Also, if the tumor is smaller, then that means the visual potential tends to be better. So if the tumor is directly in the center part of the vision, then obviously the radiation may affect the vision and may decrease the vision even uh, if the tumor is small. But that still often gives you an opportunity to have peripheral vision, and that can be helpful for driving and various other things in life. And if the tumor is not directly in the center of the vision uh, for a small tumor, then radiation tends to work really well and has a much lower chance of affecting the vision in the long run. When the tumors become larger, medium to large size, uh, then that's when the conversation becomes a little bit more challenging. And I think, you know, for large tumors that are kind of on the border, where we know radiation will likely work, but either the vision has already been significantly damaged or the toll that radiation would take on the eye would cause significant vision loss. I think that's where it becomes a conversation as to the benefit of doing radiation versus a nucleation and kind of figuring out the threshold. Because um, if you have radiation done and the side effects end up becoming problematic, there is a chance that you end up having to have an enucleation down the road. And so I think that's something important for patients to understand uh, because there's the potential option of having the enucleation up front and eliminating a lot of those side effects and kind of dealing with those negative effects down the road where you end up ultimately having a nucleation anyway. So what would be some of the locations that, um, for an, like an instance like that, what would be some of the locations where that would be the most likely to occur for like a larger or a medium to large tumor that, you know, you would see success in treating the tumor, right? Like the, the tumor has been treated and the cancer is, is solved for the moment as far as can, you know, the eye is concerned. Um, but that, that there's a likelihood of these kind of side effects and, and like I guess, how would you um, describe that process over maybe the first two to five years after the treatment? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with posterior tumors first. And I think the one of the biggest factors that we think about with radiation effects is, you know, in general, radiation is not super smart. It does a great job killing the tumor, but it also affects a lot of the healthy tissues around that tumor. And so if your tumor is located near the nerve or near the center part of the vision, it is going to have the potential to damage the nerve, damage the center part of the vision, and damage the blood vessels around it. And so if you have a large tumor that is very close to the nerve in the center part of the vision, then we know the radiation will do a fantastic job, but you will have the risk of having damage to the nerve over the course of the first year to 18 months and damage to uh, the macula or the center part of the vision. We know that the radiation makes the blood vessels more leaky, and so they can leak blood into the eye. And when the radiation damages the blood vessels, your retina gets mad because the blood vessels, they're supposed to bring the oxygen and the nutrients to the retina. In the same way, if you're not able to breathe or not able to eat, you get grumpy. The retina is the same. So when those blood vessels get damaged, it tells the eye, make me some blood vessels because I want to breathe and I want to eat. But the eye doesn't do a great job, and so the new blood vessels leak even more blood and can cause more vision problems. And so um, that's kind of the challenge uh, with radiation in the back part of the eye, especially when it's close to the nerve and the center part of vision. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, basically, just like all of these blood vessels, there's there's so much interior, internally that, that, that can be affected by the radiation. Um, so yeah. what would what would the trajectory of those kinds of side effects look like over time, really for any of the tumors? Um, like, do people mostly experience the side effects really fast right away? Does it kind of vary from person to person? Um, and is there anything that can be done 
for any size of tumor, I guess, small, medium, or large, to kind of offset those side effects and to mitigate the, the discomfort or kind of what's happening? Those are fantastic questions. And I think, you know, you kind of bring us to uh, the point where we are as an ocular oncology community in terms of debating the best approach uh, for patients in this situation. So I would say first, it varies a lot per person. So any normal baseline characteristics that affect the blood vessels make you more likely to have damage from the radiation. So if you have high blood pressure and it's not controlled, if you have diabetes and it's not controlled, both of those things already affect the blood vessels. And so it makes you more likely to have damage from the radiation. If you had previous chemotherapy for various other reasons, that can also affect the blood vessels. So I think that's something at baseline that we keep in the back of our mind. Next, obviously, we talked about the location of the tumor and how close it is to the nerve and the center part of the vision, but also how thick the tumor is matters. The thicker the tumor, the higher radiation dose is required, and that obviously makes sense that the, the higher radiation dose is going to cause more damage to those vital areas. And then I think we try to think about, well, what can we do to prevent this? Because studies have shown that up to 50% of people with melanomas can have damage to their vision in the long run due to these radiation effects. Now, obviously, again, it depends on the size, depends on location, depends on other systemic factors like hypertension and diabetes, but that's a high percentage of people that can have vision loss from this. So a few studies done out of Boston, Philadelphia, and New York all showed that if you give injections uh, of anti-VEGF medications, basically a type of medication that's supposed to help stabilize the blood vessels. If you give those injections early, starting shortly after the time of radiation, even before you see the radiation damage, it suggests that it reduces the risk of radiation damage down the road. Now, what does this mean? In some of these studies, injections were given as frequently as every two months, and some studies as distant as every four months and usually up to a few years afterwards. So that's a heavy burden on patients to be getting injections pretty regularly for a couple of years to try and reduce the risk of damage from radiation. And it does not guarantee that radiation damage won't happen, but it does at least reduce the risk in these studies. And so how do we decide who's a good candidate for this? How do we decide how posterior the tumor needs to be, how close it needs to be to the nerve or the center part of the vision or how thick, we truthfully don't have the perfect answer. And so different doctors have different recommendations based on their experience. And so that's something good to have as a conversation with your doctor about uh, these injections and how beneficial they may be. Okay. No, that makes sense. And I, I feel like I've heard that study before where they they just suggested the idea that, you know, given the injections, even before the radiation damage is seen, had uh, the potential to kind of lower um, the risk or lower the, maybe the, what's the phrase? The, the extent, like, mm -hmm. or the, mm -hmm. yeah, the extent of the side effects from the radiation and just kind of mitigated some of that. And it didn't make it not happen, but it just kind of staved it off a little longer or um, aided in maintaining the vision. Like there's, there's various different benefits to it. Um, would you say that someone who has a posterior larger tumor, medium to large, that's, you know, relatively thick, um, and they decide for whatever reason, because it, you know, it's, it's one of those, maybe like, like you said, it's kind of like on the, on the border, right? Sometimes you could, you could go either way. You could go for a nucleation because like you said, it, it could end up in the long run. You could end up there anyway. If you guys know me and that's where I ended up. <laughs> um, but, but in the other side of things, like you could just maybe lose some vision or lose all vision, but your eye could be totally fine, um, in the long run for the rest of your life. So, um, how, how do you kind of weigh weigh that option and, and, or I guess what I'm trying to ask is really like those, those injections, are those typically even considered for someone who has a tumor that, that causes vision loss immediately, or are they just for kind of smaller tumors, medium tumors that already have some preservation of vision to work on? Yeah, that's another great question. And I think this varies a lot too per patient and per doctor. So I think larger tumors that are in the center part of the vision where the vision is already affected the injections at that point are not going to do much to preserve vision because the vision's already affected by the tumor. And so you won't be kind of preventing blood vessel damage that in a way that would allow good vision. Sometimes injections can be helpful to prevent bleeding in the eye. 
Um, but I think more often than not, injections are beneficial when the tumor is not directly in the center of the vision. And there is therefore, there is some good visual potential. And if you reduce the risk of radiation damage, then the vision can hopefully be pretty good in the long run. But okay. injections do come into play afterwards because once radiation damage does happen, the only effective treatment that we have um, are injections. And it can be anti-VEGF, it can be steroids and that's a whole nother long conversation, but I think those injections end up being required pretty regularly for a long period of time to try and give the maximum benefit and to reduce that damage or, or eliminate that damage as much as possible. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, okay. So let's, um, do you feel like this would be a good point to like kind of shift gears to anterior Absolutely. Um, so we're talking about those frontal tumors, the ones that are in the front of the eye. Those are the ones that, um, I guess to my experience and learning about them, it's pretty rare to find them when they're small just mm -hmm. because of the location. Um, so for those kinds of tumors, where, where do you kind of, I guess, piece it out as far as what treatment do we look at and why and what's more effective and when? Yeah. So I think, you know, you mentioned a very, very key point in terms of early diagnosis. One of the reasons why posterior tumors are found earlier is because they're closer to the center part of the vision. And as they grow, they may leak fluid that affects the vision or the tumor itself may block some of the vision. But tumors closer to the front part of the eye usually don't affect the vision until they grow large enough to kind of come in front of the pupil or to touch the lens or to start blocking the vision. And therefore they tend to have a longer period of time to grow. And so they are often found when they're a little bit larger. And so I think kind of based on that alone, the chances of needing a nucleation for one of the tumors kind of that are more anterior in the ciliary body or, or in the anterior part of the choroid, a nucleation tends to be a little bit uh, more likely um, in those scenarios. Um, but when you do radiation, um, the side effect profile is a little bit different. As we kind of talked about, it's further away from the nerve, further away from the center part of the vision. And so that tends to be less of a significant factor. However, it number one causes a cataract and cataracts are not the worst thing in the world. Um, as in you can have surgery to remove the cataract after uh, you can see that the tumor has shrunk enough um, that, the, that the treatment is successful and you're not worried about the tumor still being active or coming back. The time frame on that varies a lot per surgeon, um, varies a lot based on the status of the other eye. Obviously, if the tumor is in your only eye and you get a cataract and now you can barely see, there would be interest in doing the cataract surgery earlier. Um, and so that's, that's one of the considerations there. The second factor is that the radiation not only kills the tumor again, but also damages the wall of the eye. And so the white part of the eye, the sclera, can actually get pretty thinned out from the radiation. And it's not that it only happens in tumors that are in the front. This actually happens in the back too. But that area, number one, you don't see it because it's kind of in the back part of the eye. And number two, you're not as worried about the sclera being thin there because there's not the same issue of kind of bumping into that area um, or kind of having things rub up against it that would potentially allow uh, tumor tissue to come towards, to come out the front part of the eye. Now, if radiation works really well, it's dead tumor tissue. It is not spreading active cancer. But that being said, when the eye is open and the wall of the eye is very thin, there's a risk of infection and other factors too. So those are kind of the two main things that you think about with a heavy radiation dose for a tumor towards the front part of the eye. I feel like that makes sense. And I guess I'm just going to use myself as an example. Like I know we've talked about my situation, but um, so I had a posterior, or I mean an anterior tumor that I chose to treat with radiation and um, experienced that scleral damage, but didn't quite didn't quite know what it was. And the reason that we didn't know for sure if it was just scleral damage was because at the time of measuring, the ultrasound was showing that there was more tumor. Basically, it was showing that like, oh, you know, your tumor two months ago was less than nine millimeters, but now it's over 10. Um, and so there was this question of, did it grow or did it not? Um, can you talk about maybe kind of some of the limitations of measurement within the eye as far as measuring tumors, just so that we can kind of, 
I guess, just cover that base as far as, you know, if you're having your tumor measured and you're worried that it's growing or not growing, here's kind of the limitations that doctors are dealing with when they're measuring. Absolutely. So first, if a tumor is posterior and you have a clear view in, there's no cataract, then it's easy to measure it multiple ways. You're number one, looking inside the eye. And so you can measure it uh, based on your exam. You can take pictures of that area and you can magnify it really well and use the blood vessels like fingerprints to assess if there's been any changes compared to the last photo. And then you have the option of doing an ultrasound to check for the dimensions and the thickness there. If bleeding happens in the eye, if a cataract develops, or if the tumor is more towards the front part of the eye and you can't see the entire thing, then it becomes much more challenging to measure because you're no longer just measuring by looking and you don't have photos to look. So you only have an ultrasound. The ultrasound works really, really well, but there can be a variation in measurements based on who's doing the ultrasound. So it's nice to have either the same person or the same technique. If the ultrasound instrument is different, sometimes the measurements can be a little different. And then if you have a situation where the sclera is thin, now the tumor can kind of be moving more towards the front part of the eye. And instead of actually growing, it just measures as a little bit larger because um, the sclera has thinned and that dead tumor tissue has now kind of moved forward in the area of that scleral thinning. And so that can be confusing also to determine whether or not the tumor has grown. No, for sure. That makes sense. And honestly, I mean, (laughs) I know for me, it was like, it was very confusing, especially when the biopsy and everything came back and it was like, actually, all of this is just dead tumor tissue and the sclera is just pulling apart. It's like, okay. Um, So is there anything that can be done or that has been tested or tried that you've heard about that can mitigate some of that in the terms of like an anterior tumor where there is that likelihood of the scleral damage um, occurring, but it's maybe it's let's just, let's just throw in the happy scenario that somebody has something that's barely on the verge of like an anterior tumor. It was found early enough that it's small enough that it, you know, treating it is not going to be using maybe as much radiation as I had. Like I probably Mm -hmm. had like 10 times what a small tumor had. Um, but if that's the case, um, is there anything that can be done? Like are the, are the same things that can be done for a posterior tumor applicable to kind of mitigating that radiation damage for the, the frontal tumors? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we don't really have anything to prevent the development of cataracts. And so that's one of those things that just happens with time. In terms of scleral thinning, we also don't have a treatment for prophylaxis. So we don't have a treatment to prevent it. However, um, we try to pay close attention to it. And as we see the sclera thinning, we kind of determine our follow-up and try to do that a little bit more closely because there's a possibility of putting a scleral patch graft. And that basically is you take a piece of sclera from a donor, a donor sclera, and then you can actually stitch that in place over the area of thinning. And so that provides extra protection uh, in the area where the sclera was thinned. Because that's a surgery and because there are risks associated with every surgery, it's not something that you kind of jump to immediately, um, but you watch closely to see if the sclera is continuing to thin. And then if it gets to the point uh, where it's thin enough that it requires this, then this is a good approach to, uh, to do. Okay. That's interesting. I don't know that I'd like, I mean, I've heard of donor sclera being used like after enucleation because I know that can be pretty common. Um, but I don't think I've ever, ever heard of it being a graft. So that's, that's nifty. Um, okay. Danae, I'm sorry. There's one more thing that I should have mentioned about side effects for anterior tumors and that's dryness on the front part of the eye. And so if you have a tumor of the iris, a ciliary body, and the radiation goes over the cornea, it can make your eye very, very dry. This is also something that we see with proton beam, um, radiation as well. And so, um, significant lubrication can be helpful, uh, to handle the dryness, but also to try and reduce the effects of it over time. So artificial tears, oftentimes preservative free artificial tears can be helpful. Sometimes you need punctal plugs, which basically is a plug that blocks the drainage system. So instead of your tears evaporating quickly, your eye stays better lubricated because the tears don't leave as quickly. So I think that's something else to consider. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I don't know that I've ever heard of, I mean, I know eye drops, like I'm familiar with eye drops, but I don't know that I'd ever heard of plot, like blocking the drainage system. Um, so that's interesting. Thank you. Uh, okay. So let's shift gears just a little bit. And I feel like we've covered for the most part, we've covered the treatments, we've covered the locations, we've covered side effects of each of those. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of considerations that are hopefully talked about with most doctors where, you know, you have a tumor, you know that you need treatment. It's likely you're doing proton beam or, um, or brachytherapy. Is there a discussion that then happens as far as when and why and how to do a biopsy? Um, and if so, like, what does that look like for tumors in the front versus tumors in the back? Um, yeah, tumors yeah. treated with brachytherapy versus proton therapy. So I guess let's cover front versus back first, and then we can cover proton beam and, and radiation. Sure. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic question because I think, you know, one of the things uh, as an ophthalmologist that you do is you talk about treating the eye and that's extremely important, making sure that you kill the tumor. But patients obviously want to know, well, what does this mean about the risk to the rest of my body? Uh, what does this mean about my life expectancy? And so I think, Old studies were kind of saying based on location and based on size, um, that would determine the chance of spread. We know that at the time of diagnosis, about less than 4% of people have already had spread. So that tends to be something that's pretty rare. In order for us to determine who's likely to have spread down the road, though, the biopsy gives us the most information because it looks at the molecular factors of the tumor. And so DNA, RNA, etc. If the tumor is done, if the tumor is located in the front part of the eye, then that is somewhat easier to access. Just the same way you can see the front part of the eye, uh, you can basically shine a light on one side of the eye and that highlights the shadow of the location of the tumor. And once you put your markings there, you are able to use a needle to go directly through the wall of the eye and into that tumor to obtain tumor tissue. Um, and so that tends to work pretty well and tends to be an easier process to do because the tumor is located in the front part of the eye. Sometimes because the needle goes through the wall of the eye and into the tumor and then back out, sometimes people will do a freezing treatment to reduce the risk of tumor cells escaping the eye, or sometimes people just place the radiation um, if they're doing a plaque, they just do the radiation right over that area, and therefore the radiation would kind of kill the cells at that location. If the tumor is in the back part of the eye, though, you can't rotate the eye all the way around to kind of put the needle through the wall of the eye. And so we do a process that's similar to the intravitreal injections that we talked about, and you go near the colored part of the eye, but still in the white part, and you use a lens to look in the eye and the needle goes across the inside of the eye and into the tumor. Sometimes that's done with the microscope. Sometimes that's done just with a headlamp. And this is something that is also quite effective, a great approach to doing a biopsy. It's obviously easier on larger tumors, but can be done on very small tumors as well. And that helps to give you really good information about the chance of spread and can help guide um, how often we should be doing imaging of the rest of the body in the future, and whether or not it's worthwhile to have a conversation about clinical trials or thinking about ways to reduce the risk of spread, depending on what those results show. Okay. Now that makes sense to me for sure. Um, so as far as that, like that biopsy being taken, um, when that happens, obviously during plaque, it's typically done at the time of treatment. Are there any times that, um, that the biopsy is taken at a different time than the time of treatment? Like is proton beam therapy one of those? Yes, so um, I would say because you go to the operating room for proton beam therapy in order to place those tantalum clips, when you're in the operating room, that's a perfect time to do that biopsy because you're already there, you already have anesthesia, you already have anesthesia around the eye and so a biopsy can be done at that time. And then you would come back afterwards for the proton beam treatment. For plaques, you can also do this before the plaque is done. Usually that's because um, melanoma is a clinical diagnosis. And so you make that diagnosis by looking in the eye and by doing imaging, ultrasound, some pictures, etc. Sometimes patients say, you know what, before we make this decision of removing the eye or of radiation where there's going to be side effects, I want 100% confirmation that this is a melanoma. Or... A patient has a tumor that looks like a melanoma, but they also have a different type of cancer in their body. And you want to make sure that this lesion is either a melanoma or spread from the other cancer. So in those kind of situations, you may do a biopsy beforehand. 
And the biopsy can be twofold. Number one, to confirm the diagnosis. So you send that information to pathology for them to assess. And then at the same time, you get the sample for uh, molecular prognostication, basically looking for the risk of spread. And so you can send that off and that will also kind of give you the information if it turns out to be a melanoma about the risk of spread to other parts of the body. And so you can do that first and then follow up with the plaque treatment afterwards in that scenario. Okay. Um, So what are some of the, I guess, some of the concerns that you come up against with patients for having that biopsy done? Um, I guess let's talk, you know, things like like myths or conversations around the cost, um, around the time frame. Like, am I going to get the results back in time to be able to have a successful treatment? Because I know there's there's a sense of urgency. So I could imagine any case where they do the biopsy ahead of time that it could feel really like concerning, like, oh, we're waiting. <laughs> we're waiting to treat. Um, so obviously I, I would assume those times are only done in, in real cases of like gen- genuine question of like, hmm, is this really melanoma? Um, but can you just talk a little about some of those kind of barriers that you come up against in conversations with patients around the biopsy? Yeah, absolutely. So I think anytime you're getting uh, a biopsy, it can be scary. The, the word biopsy doesn't sound that bad, but patients always ask, well, how do you do the biopsy? And when you say you're sticking a needle in the eye, there's no one that's excited to hear that. And so I think that in and of itself can be scary. And patients definitely want to know how much anesthesia is there, how much they're going to feel, and what are going to be the side effects. So there are some real things that we pay attention to. There's a small percentage of patients that get bleeding from the biopsy. Most of the time, the blood goes away on its own. Sometimes it requires a surgery to remove the blood. There's always the concern about spread of cancer uh, of the tumor outside the eye with the biopsy. This is extremely, extremely low. We've looked at all the cases in the literature And there are very, very few cases, and the vast majority of them were not done with small needles. They were done during uh, an older time when the technique had kind of larger uh, biopsy approaches, and so the risk was uh, higher in those situations. There is the concern about decreased vision. And I think the biopsy in and of itself, the vast majority of the time, does not affect the vision at all. Now, if the tumor is located directly in the center part of the vision, and you're putting a needle in the center part of the vision, you may have some side effects there, but oftentimes you can still do the biopsy successfully without significantly uh, damaging the vision. There's also a conversation about, well, on a larger tumor, it's easier to get material, and on a smaller tumor, you know, how do you approach this? I would say that on very small tumors, less than two millimeters, sometimes less than a millimeter and a half, it can be a little more challenging to get material, but you still have actually a decent chance of getting material. And so it's not unreasonable to do a biopsy in those situations. And I think that's a conversation uh, to have with your treating surgeon uh, about the benefit and kind of the pros and cons. But I think in general, um, vision damage, the risk of spread outside the eye, and then the other thing that you mentioned, cost, um, are the things that patients bring up the most. Um, And then I think cost, it depends on how you're approaching this. Um, There's a couple of different companies that do molecular prognostic testing. Uh, I work predominantly with Castle Biosciences for their testing, and I know that they have a program that really works with patients. So if their insurance does not end up covering the treatment, Um, then Castle tends to work with the patient on it and I think oftentimes just eats the cost actually. Um, So it tends to be uh, a patient-friendly approach. So you you don't end up getting stuck with some really large bill. And I think that's important for patients to know. Yeah. Well, and that can be really alarming too when you, you know, you get two months into your diagnosis and then suddenly you get your Castle Biosciences test back and it's like, here's your bill for $10,000. And you're like, what? <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's good. Like, and that's, that's an important thing that hopefully, um, hopefully all doctors are having that conversation, like with their patients to just explain the process of this is what the billing looks like. This is what Castle does. Um, and that they are, a, you know, a patient friendly company. And, um, just, you know, speaking from my own personal experience, like my insurance didn't cover it, but like they did cover it. They just didn't contract with them. So like there's there's just funny ways that insurances work and nuances to how, you know, company A versus company B is going to work and what they're going to do. Um, some of them may just outright deny it. And in those cases, 
Castle has a team, like a clinical um, appeal team, where they go in and they actually create the appeals for you. And as far as I understand, you as the patient don't actually have a whole lot to do there other than just sign a few papers and just basically give them permission to appeal. Um, And in other cases, you have like situations where you might get a check and the check is supposed to be, you know, to cover the cost of whatever your insurance says they'll cover. It might be part, it might be all, uh, but regardless, there's some kind of a check that, that essentially makes your net cost as the patient zero. Um, and so, like you said, like if the, if castle gets a check for all of it, great. That's obviously their ideal situation. If they don't, then they tend to go through that appeal process. They, um, go through exhausting all of their ways to basically appeal to insurance for coverage. And then if that doesn't work, then like you said, they eat the cost. Um, So eating the cost just, again, means patient doesn't have a financial responsibility. So that's definitely one of the huge benefits. And you mentioned there is another molecular testing. Um, Is that the one that is out of uh, University of Pennsylvania? So University of Pennsylvania has one. Impact Genetics has one. Oh, yeah, I forgot Impact. Um, And so I think, you know, they also look for high risk features um, of of these tumors. And I think, you know, another thing that patients are really worried about is, well, what happens if the results come back as high risk? Some patients think, you know what, I actually don't want to know that information. I just want to live my life without worrying about it. And so actually, I worked um, with a a few other people from, uh, from different organizations to check with patients who had had biopsies, who received information that said that they were high risk for spread, because I wanted to know if this was something that was concerning to them after they got those results. And it actually turned out that they felt empowered by that information. They felt that they were more part of their treatment process, and they were actually able to kind of make some decisions based on that, um, that they thought it was still worthwhile to get the biopsy. And so I think, again, these conversations are important to be individualized with your treating provider. Um, But I do think it's important to know that the vast majority of patients, even with high risk results, still found it helpful to get the biopsy. So I think that's one of those other concerns that patients have that uh, ultimately may not be as bad as they think. Okay. No, I think that's a good point. And um, it's kind of, I'm, I'm a Harry Potter geek, so I apologize. It just comes out all the time. Um, but <laughs> it's kind of like the, the quote, I think, from Dumbledore, where he says, like, fear of a name only increases fear of a thing itself. And I think for me as a class two patient, that was true. It was like, okay, there was a lot more fear around the what if it was than there was around the here's the answer. Um, and once I had an answer and it was no longer this ambiguous thing, then it, it became a little more tolerable. Like you said, it was, it was empowering information. It was information I could use to then go to clinical trials if I wanted to, you know, discuss things with a uh, medical oncologist and just kind of really game plan. What is, what is my life managing this cancer going to look like, um, from here on out, as opposed to, you know, yes, there are people who they feel, Uh, I definitely think there, you know, it's fair to say there are people who don't have the biopsy because they weren't given the chance. Uh, Maybe it's because their physician didn't feel confident in doing it. And they just, that was the only option is that they couldn't do the biopsy for one reason or another. Um, If I guess as a, as a physician yourself, as an ocular oncologist yourself, if you were to advise patients who have been given that, that kind of information where they're told, yeah, doing a biopsy is really a bad idea. Um, I guess, A, are there actual legitimate reasons to not do a biopsy? And B, would you, I guess, offer any advice to seek a second opinion? Because in my brain, I'm just like, if somebody's not willing to go for it, I want to know if they're the best doctor for me. Um, That's kind of where my brain goes with that kind of information. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so I think uh, there's a couple of things about that. So I would say sometimes if there's a really small tumor and it's directly in the center part of the vision, then you know that doing that biopsy may affect the vision and it has a little bit of a lower chance of giving you results. And so in that scenario, it may be reasonable to hold off on doing the biopsy because um, on tumors that are that small, there's probably a lower chance that it's an aggressive lesion. Um, And there are studies that show even if you have a class two tumor, which is a more high risk for spread, but it's on the smaller side, then it tends to have a lower risk of spread than the other class twos. And so I think that's important information. However, um, if that's not the case, 
um, and you want a biopsy because you want to know the risk of spread, then I think it's completely reasonable to talk to the doctor about uh, the reasons why they don't want to do the biopsy. And then I think it might even be reasonable to set up a second opinion. Um, there's a number of uh, ocular oncologists out there that are willing to do these biopsies. And I think it's particularly important because once you have radiation, these tests are not validated for doing a biopsy after radiation is done. So once the treatment happens, uh, you're no longer able to get reliable results on the biopsy. And so I think your best bet is to get the biopsy before treatment or at the time of treatment as we've discussed. And so kind of working on getting a second opinion quickly is definitely a reasonable idea in order to get the biopsy results. So let's just speak to kind of some of the urgency that can happen at the time of diagnosis for really any size and any location of tumor. You're told you have cancer in your eye. You're talking to your doctor. They're telling you, here's your options. Here's what I think we should go with. Um, but here's, here's the options. What do you want to, what do you want to choose? Say you want a second opinion. Um, what would you say is a reasonable time frame for having that second opinion done that is also going to, you know, allow space for, um, early on enough treatment? Because obviously we don't want to let this go for another year. We don't mm -hmm. want, ideally, we probably don't want six months to go by before we do something. But what would be like a reasonable time frame for seeking a second opinion that would be considered okay? Like, you know, if you have to wait this long for a second opinion and you want it, this is fine. I think within two to three weeks, I mean, you can probably wait a month or so, but within two to three weeks is ideal. And I think the ocular oncology community is very, very small. We pretty much know each other. I've definitely had patients that I've seen who have said, well, you know, I've had a family member that had a different type of cancer and they were treated at X institution. Is there somebody at that institution that I could also see because I felt comfortable there or because I have family there? You just make a phone call, you set them up with a second opinion. Or sometimes a patient is really doubting uh, what's going on and they just want to hear it from someone else. I take no offense to that in any way because it isn't about my pride. It's about making sure that the patient is treated. And so many times I'll send them for a second opinion somewhere else and then they will come back and I will treat them. Or sometimes I send them for a second opinion and they get treated elsewhere, which is also fine by me. And so I think just talking with your doctor sometimes and asking for a second opinion can be helpful. But I think patients who have access to this platform and this conversation already have access to a community of people who have ocular melanoma. And therefore, I would reach out to these resources as well. And you can hear from people about what their experience was like and where people are. And that'll give you an opportunity to uh, get in to see someone else for a second opinion. And the vast majority of us as ocular oncologists will try our best to accommodate you within a few week period um, because we know the, the urgency of treating the disease, but also kind of the emotional impact that it has on you to be diagnosed with the melanoma and to have in the back of your mind, okay, I have cancer and I really want to be moving on this quickly. So I think within a few weeks is something that is usually quite feasible. Okay. And let's just talk real briefly timeline of treatment. What are, I mean, is there, is there any differing timeline of treatment as far as what's a reasonable amount of time between, okay, diagnosis, decide on a treatment plan, and the treatment actually happens for posterior, anterior, and for plaque or proton beam? So I think uh, the timing based on location of the tumor doesn't vary much. The timing based on uh, the treatment modality that's used doesn't vary that much. So I think when you get into a center, you want to try and be treated within like the first four to five weeks if possible. I think that's just kind of a general uh, time frame. And the reason is because melanomas are usually not very, very fast growing tumors. So if you're diagnosed and you're treated within four, five, six weeks, the tumor likely hasn't changed at all in size. However, waiting until after that, there's the possibility the tumor could grow, and that affects how much radiation is required to treat the tumor. So the longer you wait, the more likely it is that the dose of radiation that was originally planned may no longer be sufficient to treat that lesion. So I think within the first four to five weeks is usually ideal. Okay, no, that makes sense. Um, I know that 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 can be a question that comes up a lot in Facebook groups of just people concerned that like I was just diagnosed and like, I want this taken care of now. Like, cause you know, that would be nice. Um, I think the only place that I know of that treatments happen within a week of diagnosis 
is like Dr. Shields. And that's because people travel to see her. They're staying there for a period of time and that's how they operate. Um, so I think that's, to me, that's reassuring that like the majority of the ocular oncology community operates within a four to five week period of diagnosis to treatment. Um, and that is fairly reasonable. And obviously like you can always check with your doctor. And I, I don't think, I don't think my doctor had any issue at all with me asking her like, well, can you just take an ultrasound measurement? Cause like you already told me it's big. Can you measure it again between now and the treatment so we can make sure it hasn't changed again. And she was like, absolutely no problem. Like we can definitely do that just to reassure you. So I guess that, that just, again, comes down to advocacy. We talk about that a lot here. Um, just advocating for yourself as a patient and trusting that your doctor wants what's best for you. And if you are telling them what you need, they will listen. (laughs) That's what, that's what you guys are really good at is, is listening. And, um, and I feel like I've had that experience across the board. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think, uh, you know, my, my colleagues who who I've worked with, whether it be directly in person or through communication or patients who have moved from my area to their part of the country, um, pretty much everyone I've worked with and spoken with has been really receptive to uh, taking care of the patients and kind of meeting them where they are. I think one thing that that is also important on the radiation side effect um, perspective, but also from the enucleation perspective, There are emotions that are involved in this and dealing with the side effects of these treatments can definitely have an emotional impact. If that's the case, don't be shy about reaching out for mental health support and emotional support. I think that's something that is critically important. I think us on the ophthalmology side, we have resources to help you with, but we don't always know who would benefit most from that. So I would just encourage every patient to not be shy about that and to reach out to your doctor to ask uh, to make those connections because we're more than happy to do it um, if we know that that would be something that would be beneficial. No, that's that's such a powerful thing to be reminded of too, because I think as patients, you know, we're in, we're in this survival mode for the first couple of months where you're just kind of bam, 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 appointment to appointment. And it's sometimes it's not until you're experiencing side effects or you're in the healing process that you're really just feeling the impact emotionally and mentally from the diagnosis, the treatment, um, kind of just the fallout, so to speak. So I think that's such an important point. And I hope that people can take that to heart. Um, like you said, like the, we don't need to be shy about that. There's no shame in reaching out for support. Um, that's why the support is there. It's because there are traumatic and crazy things that happen in life and we need to be able to lean on people for those. Um, and mental health professionals are definitely one of the best avenues. Um, peer to peer support can also be helpful, but I think just, you know, recognizing that there is, um, that level of adjusting and that level of grieving, whether it's grieving a a little bit of sight or grieving all of your sight. Um, there's, there's a lot of emotions mixed up in all of this, just purely because it's cancer, Mm -hmm. but then you also Mm -hmm. add in the layers of, okay, your eye, your vision, your appearance, um, your ability to function kind of like what changes. Like I know some, some people who are, um, kind of prone to, maybe balance issues to begin with for one reason or another, they have more balance issues or driving and, you know, all of these things that we can, we can find support for. So thank you for making that a point. You also made a very good point about the bam, 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 and how quickly things move (laughs) in the beginning and the significance of the word cancer. Sometimes when you're first seeing your doctor, you hear cancer and everything moves so fast that you don't either hear what they're saying or you don't remember it. Um, And sometimes it's good to take a step back and kind of ask those questions again or kind of go through that initial conversation to understand the differences in treatment options, the side effects. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this conversation will be something uh, that will be documented so that way people can, after that initial conversation, if everything was stressful or if they didn't hear everything or if stuff wasn't said, then they can kind of go back to this and, and use it as a little bit of a resource to get some more of that information. But I definitely encourage everyone to reach out to your treating physician um, if there's any questions that you have after that initial visit. No, that's, that's very, very true. And I feel like somebody told me, they like told me to record my appointments. They're like, you're not going to remember this. So just take a, take a voice recording and have somebody else with you. Um, there's a lot of things you can do to make sure that you're getting the information because it is a lot and it's a lot that happens in pretty rapid succession. Um, as far as, you know, what's talked about and how quickly it's talked about simply because it is cancer. And so there is, you know, a, a level of like we've talked about, like urgency of we've got to take the we've got to take care of this and we've got to do it quickly. Um, so that's that's definitely a good point. 
Um, we did have like just, just a couple of questions. One of the questions I'm not entirely sure about, so we may not really have the ability to answer it, but, um, this one says, um, just as we're kind of getting to the end of our time here, this one says, when would you use TRP or Ozurdex, O-Z-U-R-D-E-X, in treating radiation retinopathy? So I guess the, that's, let's just umbrella that for a minute. Radiation retinopathy is? Yeah, so that's when you have damage to the retina from the radiation. TRP stands for targeted retinal photocoagulation. And so basically what will happen sometimes is the radiation will kill the blood vessels. And normal blood vessels are juicy, thick, red. When they start to get damaged, they become skinny, they become yellow or white, and we call those sclerotic blood vessels. So you can often see that by looking at it and adding laser in the areas where you see the loss of blood vessels can help reduce the risk of abnormal blood vessel growth and bleeding subsequently in the eye. And sometimes you can do a fluorescein angiogram where you give a dye injection through the veins and it shows the blood circulation in the back of the eyes. And so that can also tell you when there's more subtle damage to the blood vessels. And that would be an indication that that laser would be a good idea. I know there are okay. some centers that do that laser from the very beginning, and I don't think that's unreasonable either. And then Ozardex is a type of steroid injection. And I think in general, my general approach is anti-VEGF medications first. And if they don't have a great response, then we switch to steroids um, because steroids work really, really well, but they cause a cataract and they can cause the pressure to go up in a small group of patients. And so because there's that little bit of a side effect profile, I usually use that if the anti-VEGF medications don't work. Okay. So can you maybe give us a list of what are, um, like, are the anti-VEGF medications commonly just called anti-VEGF or do they have other names that are like kind of more familiar to people? Yeah. So they're called a number, there's a number of different medications. So a lot of people's go-to is Bevacizumab, also known as Avastin. There's Ranibizumab, also known as Lucentis. There's a Flibercept, also known as Ilea. More recently, uh, there's Farisimab, um, and I'm drawing a blank on what the, uh, the trade name for Farisimab is, um, but that's a new medication that was recently released and um, has been showing some good effects. And then from the steroid standpoint, um, dexamethasone, also known as Ozardex, can work, or triamcinolone, also known as Kenalog. And I think there's a really, really exciting study uh, that is looking at patients with radiation retinopathy and checking uh, anti-VEGF medications versus steroid medications. So as physicians and as patients, everyone should get more information about what's the appropriate treatment and kind of the timing of that treatment moving forward. So that clinical trial is supposed to start in the next few months, and we're really excited to learn more about how to take care of patients in a better way. Oh, that's, that is super exciting for sure. Um, as far as patients who maybe they didn't have, um, like they already had their treatment and they're experiencing some of these side effects, um, what would you say is kind of the best, the best approach to make sure that they're getting the care? Like say they're not getting shots for whatever reason. Um, and, and they're probably after listening to this, they're like, oh, I probably should be getting those shots or should have been getting those shots. Is it too late, I guess, to start getting those shots with a practitioner who does it? Or is there a point when it becomes kind of negligible? Yeah. So uh, the, the trade name for uh, Farisimab, by the way, is Vibizmol. Okay. So I just wanted to make sure that I said that also. Um, I would say that it is difficult to know the answer because it varies as to when injections should be given and when it's too late for injections. So I would say, and this is often a challenge too, because sometimes you're, the ocular oncologist does not live close to you. And so you travel to see your ocular oncologist and there may be a recommendation. And then you go back four or five, six hours drive home and your local retina specialist sees it and there's a little bit of, um, if you don't have a lot of experience with radiation retinopathy, it's not so easy to know how often people need to be injected or kind of how aggressive the radiation retinopathy is. And so I think, number one, checking in with your ocular oncologist about the benefits of the injections um, and where your vision stands, I think is important. Understanding if there's damage to the retina beyond the benefit of the injections, that may be a reason why the injections are no longer given. And just like with everything else, if you feel 
that there are options out there that you're not getting access to and you either don't understand the reasons why or have some disagreement about it, it's always okay to seek a second opinion and then you can get a little bit more information. More often than not, you're going to get confirmation of what the first doctor said, but that in and of itself can be reassuring. And if you have a difference of opinion, then perhaps you find an approach that tends to be a little bit better suited to what you're interested in. No, that that's a good point. Um, well, a good various number of points. Okay, so this next patient, um, I believe she's actually, if I'm reading, I'm looking up here. Uh, yep, uh, you probably know this patient, but Amy is asking, is uvi- uveitis, is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Uveitis or and or optic nerve inflammation, a common side effect after brachytherapy? And do these conditions, I guess we're going to put the, I guess the second part of the question is, do the, do the side effects tend to get better or worse after treatment the further out you get? So optic nerve inflammation um, is definitely one of the side effects of radiation damage that we know for sure. Um, And it can happen, you know, 6, 12, 18 months down the road. So there's a little bit of variation over time. Uveitis can happen. It tends to be a little bit more rare as a side effect of radiation, but it's definitely possible. And um, I would say that the further away you get from treatment, the less likely you are to have damage from the radiation side effects. So if you get to year two, year three, and there's no side effects, it doesn't mean it can't happen, but the chances are definitely much lower at that point. So um, it's a good thing to enjoy and appreciate if there's no radiation effects at that time. No, for sure. That's that's definitely a gift if you have that happening. Um, so as far as the, just for clarification, the optic nerve inflammation, is that something that would affect vision or is the optic nerve not really affecting the vision? It's more the macula. You know, the center of vision is the macula and that's how we see. Um, but the optic nerve, if it's inflamed, what kind of result does that have on vision or on, you know, pain levels, things like that? Yeah, so the macula basically receives all of the light that comes from that comes into our eye. The light then hits the photoreceptors in the macula and all of that information is transmitted to the optic nerve and that nerve sends the signal up to the brain. So if you have damage to the nerve, if you have swelling or inflammation of the nerve, it can affect the vision. Uh, sometimes it can affect colors. Sometimes it can make things seem more dim. Um, and so it definitely can affect the vision, perhaps not as much or not as immediately as, as uh, damage to the macula, um, but it definitely um, has side effects. And so it can improve after treatment. I definitely have patients who get pretty much back to normal vision, but if the inflammation is pretty extensive, it can also cause some permanent vision loss as well. Okay. Well, I feel like that's just as we close out on side effects and we just finish up for today. Um I feel like that's another good point to bring up is just like, is there, is there sometimes, and, and do you have a way to define when it happens or is it just kind of chance when you might experience vision loss and then get it back? And how, how do you kind of reassure patients in those instances? Cause I know I had a big tumor. My retina was detached. My vision was pretty damaged and then I had radiation. So there was a certain point when my doctor was like, yeah, you're not getting any vision back. Um, despite me talking to a lot of other people who said, oh yeah, my vision got really bad. And then six months or nine months later, it got better. So like, what's the difference here? What, what kind of makes or breaks that situation? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of factors that play a role in this too. You mentioned that there was a a lot of fluid underneath the retina from the tumor. The larger the amount of fluid and the longer the fluid is there, the more that can have an impact on the vision in the long run. Then there's also some subtle changes to the blood vessels that we can't always see with our eye, but there are certain types of imaging modalities that can take a look at the health of those blood vessels. And so sometimes you can see that there's a lot of swelling in the retina. You give an injection and the swelling goes away. For many people, their vision will also improve. For some people, you can see that fluid go away. But if you do a special type of imaging, you can see that those blood vessels aren't working. And so even when the fluid goes away, the retina is not getting its nutrition. It's not getting its oxygen mm. because those blood vessels are damaged. And so that really kind of prevents vision from improving. So um, okay. it depends a lot on the individual person. No, that makes sense. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, is there anything that you feel like you want to say in closing or do you feel like we kind of covered as much as we could in this hour? Yeah, I think I think it was really an action-packed hour. We talked about uh, a wide range of things. And I would say uh, most importantly, as a patient, definitely, as you mentioned, Danae, 
advocate for yourself. If you have questions, reach out to your doctor, reach out to your network. This is definitely a good resource um, because I think understanding as much as possible is really, really helpful in preparing you emotionally and mentally for the journey that happens not only at the time of treatment, but also kind of dealing with everything that comes afterwards. So the more informed you are, the easier it is to kind of process um, what's going to happen afterwards. No, exactly. That's such a good point. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for our live audience for joining us. We got some good questions fielded from there. And thank you, Dr. Williams, for being here. Um, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your spring. And we will, I guess, hopefully hear from you as we get more information later on the Coog study that's happening. So thanks for all the work that you're doing and your concern and um, compassion for patients. So thank you. Oh, thanks so much for including me. I mean, I think this is a really, really powerful medium, uh, not only for patients who are experiencing these things um, to hear from me and from other physicians, but I think it's super important to have your perspective as a patient who was treated and who, who kind of understands this on a personal level. So I think this is extremely powerful and, and I'm just glad to have an opportunity to participate. Well, thank you so much. All right, you guys, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.